This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Let's go there. With Shira and Ryan. Entertainment. Music. Pop culture. LGBT plus news. Let's go there. Starts now. Happy Thursday. It's another Let's Go There with Shira and Ryan where we catch you up on the news of the day, pop culture, our lives, and so much more with some fun music in between on Channel Q. What up, everybody? I hope your first week of Pride has been wonderful. Mine has been good. You know, I feel like... Honestly, I'm kind of tired of seeing rainbow stuff already. It's only been like a few days, and I am over the rainbow. But I feel like even when it's not pride, you're not into rainbows. Yeah, I'm not. And that's why it makes it even unsufferable or insufferable. Is it un or insufferable? Something I'm suffering every time I see it. Because um, I just, I don't know. I just, ugh. you You're more into uh, mute colors. Yeah, yeah. Make a black one. Just an all black pride flag. It's very positive. Just black. Optimistic. I think black is a beautiful color. Make it your own. Yeah. And, but I, you know, the one flag that I, I do have to say, if the, because I think a lot of people are breaking down flags. And even I did this video for Odyssey, um, our company, um, mm-hmm. where I broke down what all the different letters of the LGBTQ plus IEA community, what they all mean for those people who are still trying to figure it out. You should check that out over at odyssey.com. I feel like it's important to have all these flags, but also it is a lot to remember what they all look like and what they're all for. So, I don't know. Check it out. All the resources are on Odyssey. There's some some really good stuff you can learn on that website of ours. Love that. That's great. But we have some great guests joining us today on the show. Oh, yeah, we do. Frankie Grande is back with us. He's got, speaking of rainbows, the Rainbow-thon coming up tonight. He's here to tell more at 4.35 p.m. Pacific, 7.35 p.m. Eastern. And we've got a cartoonist and writer who's talking about queer young adult visibility in her latest book, Girl from the Sea. Uh, But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Yep. In an interview with CNN today, Dr. Anthony Fauci said that an email he received last year from an executive at the U.S.-based EcoHealth Alliance has been misconstrued and offered a hint of regret about a February 2020 email downplaying the need to wear a mask. Here is a moment from that interview. That email, in no way, you can misconstrue it however you want. That email was from a person to me saying, thank you for, for whatever it is he thought I said. And I said that I think the most likely origin is a jumping of species. I still do think it is at the same time as I'm keeping an open mind that it might be a lab leak. 
Now, earlier this week, just to catch you up, news outlets including CNN, BuzzFeed News, and The Washington Post obtained thousands of emails Fauci sent and received since the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases became a household name early last year. We actually interviewed a reporter at The Washington Post about this yesterday, so check that out on our podcast. Go to the Odyssey app and search Let's Go There. Now, the San Francisco Giants told fans that the team will add gay pride colors to its hats and uniforms in recognition of Gay Pride Month. ESPN reported that the league intends to join the team to introduce the new designs. And this is what ESPN wrote. Billy Bean, MLB's first ambassador for inclusion, will take part in Saturday's events at Oracle Park, where the palm trees in Willie Mays Plaza will be wrapped in the 11 colors of the pride flag. The Oracle Park scoreboard will also display pride colors throughout June. And uh, that was so much trending this hour. But what's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so, you know, we talked about uh, the whole Naomi Osaka story in sports. Yeah. Well, uh, Serena and Venus Williams have spoken out um, because I think everyone has wondered what they have to say about this, especially being black woman in this sport. Um, And here is what Serena had to say versus what Serena had to say. And, honey, they are completely two different responses. Serena versus... Venus. Serena. I thought you said Serena versus Serena. No, Serena versus Venus. I said both of the sisters. Okay. Oh my goodness. Here we go. Here's Serena Williams. The only thing I feel is that uh, I feel for Naomi. I feel like uh, I wish I could give her a hug because I know what it's like. Like I said, I've been in those positions. We have different personalities um, and people are different. Not everyone is the same. I'm thick, you know, other people are thin. So um, everyone is different and everyone handles things differently. So, you know, you just have to let her handle it the way she wants to in the best way that she thinks she can. And um, that's the only thing I can say. I think she's doing the best that she can. Okay, so now here is Venus's reaction. For me personally, how I quote, how I deal with it was that I know every single person asking me a question can't play as well as I can and never will. So no matter what you say or what you write, you'll never light a candle to me. So that's how I deal with it. Um, But each person deals with it differently. Venus basically dropped the mic on that one, which I love that response because, of course, they're going to handle it two different ways. And also, I just love them kind of standing um, aside her in a way. I think we have to really listen to these players in, in the sense of when they're talking about their mental health. And if you're not familiar with everything happening, I think you should check out our podcast over on the Odyssey podcast because we literally talked about it. Um, we talked uh, about the sports thing, everything you need to know about that from the sports side, but also the mental health side as well Mm -hmm. with Dr. Alfie. So check that out because I think that's super, super important. Yeah, I think we need to um, accept and validate people's experiences. Even if one person deals with something differently, that doesn't mean that whatever whatever someone else is going through, it doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah, for sure. I think we're learning that as a society. We used to project what we feel onto someone else and expect them to do the same thing. And it's like we've acknowledged right now, I think we're in a better place to acknowledge that we're all different. We all deserve to be treated in the way we want to be treated. We sure do. Head over to wearechannelq.com to find out more about this story and all of the people who have spoken out about this whole moment. And of course, I got more Tea Report coming up next. Okay, and we'll be back with more of Let's Go There right after this. 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Critical race theory and the 1619 Project launched in 2019 have been looking to change what is taught in history classes across the nation, both focus on how the black community, the institution of slavery, as well as its impact, is at the center of the U.S. historical narrative. But now a Texas bill is fighting and looking to ban this. Back with us is Saida Grundy, assistant professor of sociology and African-American studies at Boston University. Thanks for being here for this. I couldn't think of a better person to discuss this topic. (laughs) Well, thank you guys for having me. I hope you can hear me, Ryan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm good. Yes. So first, for those who might not understand, how does critical race theory and initiatives like this, um, like the 1619 Project, change how history is taught in schools? Great question. So I think the first thing for your audience to understand is like why we have critical race theory. So there is a way of teaching United States history, and I think that this was done before there was a term for it, but we have legal scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw and others. It actually really comes out of the legal field, and critical race theory was an idea that you should be approaching these subjects with the mindset of critiquing the systemic structural elements of race, because I think there was a push, not necessarily, I mean, well, within the discipline, but also outside, uh, thinking of race in the very interpersonal, very one-dimensional terms, mm-hmm. right? Sort of the, the micro level, the tip of the iceberg. And what critical race theory did was it was talking about the structural systemic elements of these yeah. things, right? So it's a way of like, you can do race scholarship and not actually be critical of white supremacy. I know that's like <laughs> kind of weird to people, but you can. And in fact, we did that for some time. Anthropology studied race in a racist way, right? Mm. For much of its history. And critical race in sociology too. Let's be fair. Yeah. And, and critical race theory was a way of saying actually there should be an inherent critique of the power dynamics here, and that's why we have it. Totally, which makes sense, right? And now yes. it's not surprising that Republicans are fighting this, and now there's this new law in Texas. But how worrisome is this as someone who is a professor in education yourself and also who understands and from your lived experience, obviously, the importance of this all being taught? So I think it's it's, it's quite worrisome. So I think what it does is it puts K through 12 teachers on the on the side of having to play in these culture wars and these policies instead of teaching factual information about our histories, about our structures, et cetera, right? So, for example, you know, in higher ed, there is a degree to which I have more liberty because these things are more standard in my field, not say there isn't white backlash against them, there is, but it's a little more accepted consensus. And what we see ourselves doing is creating this type of knowledge so that it does affect other institutions like K through 12 institutions, education, right? We want it to affect health care. We want it to affect the legal system. We want it to affect mass incarceration. And so what it does is it says that, that you know, what, what we see is Republicans inventing, you know, a boogeyman, but it's actually saying that we're not even debating if these things happen mm-hmm. and the extent to which we need to repair them with social justice and corrective justice, right? Yep. It's saying that we're actively denying that these things happen. That is a real difference from what probably should be happening, which is more of a conversation of like what actually repairs these inequalities. If you deny that these histories happen, then that's more of an active form of what Charles Mills, who's Charles Mills was a great philosopher. He wrote an essay, it's on the internet, you can Google it. Mm-hmm. It's called White Ignorance. 
White ignorance, yep. as Mills describes it, is not the absence of knowledge. White ignorance is not fixed with simply, oh, you didn't know and now you know. White ignorance is an actual active form of violent denial. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see happening with Texas and with these other states. It's an active form of denying that these histories ever happened. Now, that takes us back to what we saw coming out of the Confederacy. That takes us back to what the daughters of the Confederacy invented, which they called, uh, uh, what was what was their name for it? It was um, uh, the, the Lost Cause, right? That takes us back to the Lost Cause, when which they were denying that slavery even harmed mm, yeah. African-Americans. Their, their message was so no slavery was beneficial for them. It gave them three hops in the cot, right? Mm-hmm. Confederate you know, generals were, uh, were fighting for a glorious cause of resisting Northern tyranny, which is all ridiculously lies, right? Well, say that. What we're I feel like right. we, we 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 have to go. We could have a whole hour around this. I, I say I hate to interrupt you, but you bring us so much knowledge and so much uh, of the truth. So thank you for your passion and for being here today. No problem. No problem. Love it. Saida Grandi is an assistant professor of sociology, African American studies at Boston University. Hope to have you back soon. Absolutely. Bye, guys. Bye. Now, coming up, as COVID-19 restrictions around the world and country are changing, we look at which ones really worked and which ones really didn't. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Florida and Texas were among the states that most aggressively reopened their economies during the pandemic. California and New York, on the other hand, have been more cautious. So what can we learn from these strategies? Well, Dr. Amesh Adalj is back with us, who's an infectious diseases expert. Thanks again for being here today. Thanks for having me. So now looking back as we're kind of a bit out of this, uh, what can we learn from how these states approached the pandemic? There's a lot to learn, but it's going to take some time to really sift through all of the data. I mean, I would say, at, you know, at, at first, just looking at it kind of at, at first cut, it's clear that states like Florida and Texas didn't obviously do worse than states like California or New York. And we know, for example, that Florida never had a mask mandate and Texas had been pretty aggressive with reopening. And I think that speaks to the fact that you know, there are certain variables that we have to account for. What level of population immunity was there because young people got it, might have gotten infected in Florida, so a decreased spread. How much could be done outdoors? What did Florida and Texas learn from the mistakes of other states, uh, like New York, uh, for example? And then I think there's also the idea of were you cr- creating kind of an, an incentive for people to drive things underground in California? So, for example, we knew outdoor transmission wasn't a major thing in California, but, but California banned outdoor dining which probably drove people into their houses to eat with their friends. And that led to transmission events. So there's a lot to know. Yeah. And obviously, I think that as someone who does trust the medical professionals out there in the CDC, I wasn't questioning that. I'm not as much of a skeptic. Like I do ask questions, though, being a journalist and a broadcaster. My worry is that with all these different ways of going about doing this and seeing that there was no not one clear way that is right, that should this come up again, should a new variant pop up that we're not going to know what or who to listen to? Well, it's important to do studies to understand when governors put blanket orders in place, which of those orders actually was responsible for control and which was just kind of extra and and just created disruption to people's lives. And I think that's the key thing is to really go back and look at these states, do advanced statistical studies where you can control for different timelines and, and different climactic factors 
and, and then try and understand what actually works. We know that, you know, testing, tracing, isolating works, that that's what we should have done. But no state had the ability to test. No state had the ability to contact trace. And that led to governors getting very nervous and using blanket orders. And then some of them started to peel things back. Some of them did not. And I think we also have to remember that, you know, what we learned from HIV and sexually transmitted infections is that harm reduction works. If you tell people don't do something, they're still going to do it, but in a more risky fashion. So I think we have to also, we have to learn from this, not necessarily because I think COVID-19 will get bad again, but for the next infectious disease emergency. Yeah, I feel like you never know these days. What do you think about Dr. Anthony Fauci's emails that got released as someone who's in the space? Did you learn anything from them? No, not nothing particularly that I didn't know already. I think that, there, you know, we know that he was in a, in a very stressful situation, lots of people emailing him, lots of decisions that needed to be made, lots of different things that, that, that were really important about the pandemic. But I don't think there was anything there that was worrisome or concerning uh, to me. Um, I, I think it, it, it's a, there's a lot of media attention to them, but I didn't see anything there that really changes anything that I've already been saying about the pandemic or, or and it doesn't, you know, change my my admiration for Dr. Fauci. Okay. <laughs> yes, he's still admired by a lot of people. What about Biden announcing the first plans for 80 million COVID-19 vaccine doses going overseas? How much will this actually help? It will definitely help because we know that this pandemic is raging out of control and any vaccine that can get into the arms of any person on this planet is going to be good when it comes to getting us back to fully in a global sense uh, to a pre-pandemic life. And I think that... Uh, now, as the United States has basically tamed this virus, has the, taken away the ability of this virus to threaten hospitals, we have to start looking globally to how do we get global trade back? How do we get global travel back? How do we keep those hospitals in those other countries uh, from going into crisis because they don't have enough vaccines? I mean, we can even just look to our border to the north in, in Canada, where, where, where they can't really do much, yet they're still struggling to get second doses into people. Yeah, and should we be worried because there are these variants in other places that should people fit, visit the U.S. that it could come here? And with that said, mask mandates are kind of done. Should they come back? Or like, what do you think about the communication of that? So if you're a fully vaccinated person, I don't think you have to worry from the variants. All the variants that we've seen so far have been easily taken care of by the vaccine. So fully vaccinated people in a highly vaccinated country is not going to really run into problem with the variants. We'll get the variants, we'll have cases, but they're not going to meet, have that same translation into hospitals and crisis uh, that we saw in the past with COVID-19 cases because our high-risk population is so heavily vaccinated. Okay. I do think that yeah. uh, for unvaccinated people, you're going to see mask mandates lift even in, in states that haven't as, as more and more people get vaccinated and cases come down and, and people's risk perception changes of this virus. We'll have to, we'll have to see in the fall when when the climactic conditions actually favor the virus transmission if there are guidance for unvaccinated individuals to, to wear masks. Hopefully we won't be there. Hopefully we'll get enough people vaccinated that even when we see some intensification in the winter will really not be major. Okay. That was Dr. Amesh Adalja, infectious disease expert. Great having you on. And coming up, more on Amazon's new kiosks that are supposed to help overwhelmed employees to, <laughs> to use them, basically to uh, decrease their anxiety. But will it actually work? That's next. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. 
Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Online retail giant Amazon unveiled a uh, small booth designed to help warehouse employees who are overwhelmed. So this is their solution to help their employees focus on their mental health and emotional well-being. And of course, this is a company who has been criticized for how they treat their employees, but they think maybe this is the answer. So this thing, Ryan, is called the Zen Booth. It's a booth you go into and you basically can go through this library of mental health and mindful practices to help you recharge that internal battery, as they like to say. So what do you think about this? Because I do think that a lot of companies are going to be implementing this but Amazon might have to do a bit more to get people on on the side um, that they are supporting people's well-being. To paint a picture for everyone, uh, it, this is like the size of a porta potty. And to be honest, <laughs> when I'm in porta potties, I get very claustrophobic and I hate <laughs> being in there. And so this idea that they think this is enough um, really speaks more so to Amazon not really even listening to its workers. I mean pay people living wages, improve their benefits. I mean, standardize their hours. It's, it's, it's really one of those things where it's like, instead of creating a booth for people to go into with some fake plants and, you know, there's not some even, videos to there's watch. There's not even room for plants. I, they, I mean, apparently there's small plants in there or something. <laughs> it just feels like they're doing everything they can to not listen to their employees. And I think Amazon has a really big issue on their hands here, and this is not going to do anything. Well, it seems like this is some sort of like new program that they're just starting to roll out. It's part of this new thing they announced called the Working Well Program to help reduce workplace injuries by letting employees recharge and re-energize with physical and mental activities, wellness exercises, healthy eating support. And once again, this could all be just kind of um, trendy things that they're implementing because they are told. And we know this. Listen, mindfulness and wellness programs are important. Let's not minimize that, but it but has this to is be not that. But it has to be more holistic. It can't just be like, okay, this is going to solve that solution. It's just like anything. Like you can't just drop in a meditation class and think, oh, everyone, everyone's stress is going to be solved. You need to look at the issue more holistically. To be honest, I don't even necessarily think. Um, I don't even really necessarily think that, you know how a lot of like Silicon Valley spots or these startups, especially if they're owned by millennials, are like the younger generation of it all. They try to create the reading corner or the quiet rooms or, you know, the meditation spots. All of that just feels so uh, unnecessary in the grand scheme of things. Just don't overwork your employees. Don't, you know, put them in situations where they feel like they have to be stressed all the time. Like, it's just... 
for me, it's just like work on the culture of it and, and instead of just thinking, oh, guess what? In the back corner over there, there's a couple pillows and there's a there's a you know some earplugs that you can just put in and yeah, you'll be fine. That's not solving a bigger issue here. Yes, of course. I believe, and coming from, and you know that I um, I want to work with companies on wellness and corporate wellness. I think you need to do this. Uh, it works, and it works twofold. I think you need to look at how your culture is, and definitely um, confronting systemic issues and confronting how employees are treated and listening to those employees so they feel heard and making changes. That's like the number one thing because uh, classes ain't going to do and nothing then, to help that. And then on, this, on the same side, like, listen, even here, like, you know I like to meditate. There's nowhere to, like, escape or have a moment of calm even in our building. And that goes, that is important. Like, you know, we're just creating outside spaces. Like, I would love an outdoor space where I can, you know, if if I come a bit early or I need to take a break in between to go and do some stuff or just disconnect. And it's hard when you're in a space. There's nowhere to disconnect. Yeah. And that could be very um, – that could, that could feel very alienating, including if you do get into something with someone or you're just feeling like crap. Uh, the only safe place could be your car. And it, a lot of people don't even have cars. They're using maybe public transportation. So you can have nowhere to just like let go and maybe scream if you need to scream, punch a few things, or even just meditate. That That is needed. So once again, like I encourage companies to look at things in multiple ways and from multiple angles and not expect like a one way to quickly fix a situation like this. But let us know what you think at LGT Show. Are your companies like implementing this stuff? Is a Zen booth really going to make a difference? Um, We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think. Now stick around because the award-winning documentary Changing the Game is changing how we look at trans athletes in high school and the producer of the documentary is joining us in 30 minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Now, coming up on the show today, and we're back, we're going to be talking about hugging. How to hug in a consensual way and do it so everyone is comfortable. That is in 15 minutes. And I'm so excited because we also have the producer of Changing the Game, an award-winning documentary out on Hulu right now. Uh, Alex Schmeider is joining us, who also works at GLAAD, to talk about this very powerful documentary. Stick around for that in 30 minutes. But first, let's get into some What's Trending This Hour National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan announced the U.S. will share 25 million vaccine doses with countries in South and Central America, Asia, and Africa. We're sharing them in a wide range of countries within Latin America and the Caribbean, South and Southeast Asia, and across Africa in coordination with the African Union. This includes prioritizing our neighbors here in our hemisphere, including countries like Guatemala and Colombia, Peru and Ecuador, and many others. Now, the administration plans to share at least 80 million doses globally by the end of June as well. The U.S. Embassy to the Holy See is flying the rainbow flag for Pride Month and a bunch of Republican politicians, religious right leaders and far right media figures are upset. Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts called the display a political stunt. By the way, Ricketts' sister is a lesbian. And uh, this is what the embassy tweeted with a photo of the flag saying the U.S. respects the dignity and equality of LGBTQIA plus people. LGBTQ plus rights are human rights. Yes, they are. Keep flying that pride flag high. Not just during Pride Month. Come on. 
And the world's largest meat processing company has resumed most production after a weekend cyber attack. But experts are saying that this attack and others are far from resolved. The FBI attributed the attack on Brazil-based meat processor GBSSA to Revel, a Russian-speaking gang that has made some of the largest ransomware demands on record in recent months. The FBI said it will work to bring the group to justice, and it urged anyone who is a victim of a cyber attack to contact the Bureau immediately. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so we got a little bit of a throwback in today's tea reports. You know those pop culture stories trending right now. Let's talk about Mrs. Doubtfire. Please, Shira, tell me this is something that you've seen. Uh, like the old school movie? Yes, Mrs. Yeah, Doubtfire. Okay. There's I only one. It's going to be like a new one. Like no. you've seen the new headlines about the new Mrs. Doubtfire. No, let's. Uh, oh, we're yes, actually we're kind of doing like a we are where are they now sort of thing. Oh. So. Basically, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire star Lisa Jacobs, she played the oldest sister in the movie. Well, in a Where Are They Now interview, Lisa spoke about a moment where her high school tried to kick her out because of her crazy, like, actor schedule. And here is her uh, talking about what Robin Williams did for her. And he went out of his way, and it was just a really sweet moment to really kind of honor her. One day on set, I was very upset because I had received this letter from my high school saying that it was too difficult for them to work long distance with me and that I just shouldn't come back to high school. I had been working with an onset tutor and sending my work back to the high school, but, and I was really upset about that. And Robin reached out to me and was like, hey, what, what's going on? I told him what happened. And he wrote a letter to my school asking them to please reconsider career. And he didn't think that that was fair. My high school got the letter and they framed the letter and put it up in the principal's office, but they declined to invite me back. So screw that high school, because <laughs> clearly yeah. all they wanted was a, a photo or like a letter from Robin Williams, but they still couldn't like actually try to work with her. It's kind of that is wild. I know. But I, the one thing that I loved about this is she said, what I love about that story and what I love about Robin, it's just the fact that he would do that for someone, that he would go out of his way, that he would take the time to realize that this would be important. Totally. It shows yeah. what type of person he was. It's really unfortunate. Whenever... We remember him or talk about him. It just makes me sad. I know. But that's why we talk about the good things. Head over to WeAreChannelQ.com to watch this full interview. It's super sweet. And, of course, keep on listening, honey, because I'm not done spilling for the show. I got more coming up next hour. Don't you? You better stick around. Okay. Now, coming up, how to navigate hugging so it's consensual and comfortable for everyone involved. That's next. Nerds. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Ready to expand your financial game? NerdWallet can coach you on smart strategies like choosing investments, finding your next credit card, and setting a budget that works for you. Score major points towards your summer vacation by learning expert tips for choosing a high-yield savings account and how to build wealth by investing in index funds. Slide into summer with smarter decisions in 2024. Follow NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Hugging this day and age can be complicated. You know, between the pandemic and conversations around consents and respecting consent, obviously, you might wonder, is it even safe to hug anymore? There's no such thing as a, a hugger anymore, is what I, I believe. You know what? I you know still, how people yeah. are like, oh, I'm a hugger. Yeah, I still, I still say, like, I, I say, uh, do you want to do a fist pump, a handshake, or a hug? You fist pump? Are you like some 17-year-old frat boy entering into his favorite fraternity? People do that who are germaphobes. Who fist bumps? A lot of people. I understand maybe like people Howie that Mandel. have Yeah, I was going to say Howie Mandel fist bumps and I'm following his lead. Some people don't want to touch hands and you do or like the, the, the foot uh, bump. Why are you bringing your feet off of the ground to bump them? That's what people did. It was the pandemic handshake. And what, like the caveman times? That just seems- No, just now. Where have you been? Under a rock. All right. Dr. Josh Glavo joins us right now, who's a clinical psychologist. I've never heard of this. Dr. Josh, thanks for joining us. I don't know about the foot bump. That's what What I'm saying. What are you talking about? People were always doing that during the pandemic because they didn't want to touch hands. No one has ever done a foot bump. Am I alone? Where are we right now? Are we on planet Earth? Okay. No one has ever done the foot bump. Dr. Josh, do you find a lot of people are anxious about hugs these days more than usual? Of course, we should be. I mean, I, I mean, I've experienced this myself. It is p- particularly right now because um, some people are vaccinated, some people are not. We're emerging. Hugging is the most, if you will, um, intimate of sort of casual uh, interaction. Yeah, people, people don't exactly know what to do. And I think more than anything else, they don't know how to approach it. And I, I, I will tell you that from personal experience. It is incredibly awkward because you don't just give someone a hug, even if you're a hugger. Um, and so you really got to have you got to have your script on how to approach it um, or just deal with the awkwardness. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I, I think this idea of like having kind of like a, a script to 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 kind of go through that. Is that something that people are actually really doing, like preparing like a, a, a little workaround to bringing themselves back into public again? Well, I, I think it's more of a mental script. It's more of an experiential script. So, for example, um, and again, uh, many of us are just emerging in, in uh, mass social situations for the first time. So, Ryan, you know, you go up, you see someone that you know or maybe you don't know that well, and you're not sure if they're vaccinated uh, they don't know that you're vaccinated, and there's this moment, right? And you mm-hmm. can either do it verbally or non-verbally. And what you typically see people do is they either open their arms or you see them say something like, I'm vaccinated. Mm. And then that seems to be the permission to then go ahead and, uh, and, and embrace in the hug. I, I, I think where people are going to get in trouble is it doesn't have to be overly formal, but it does need to have some precursor to just running up and opening your arms and assuming that because you do that, the other person's going to reciprocate. I agree. And this is something I went through even before the pandemic where I had a meeting and someone came in. It was uh, not that it matters. It happened to be a woman that came into this meeting. And right away I was in that mode of like, I'm a hugger. You know, I'm trying to be friendly with everyone. And she goes, 
oh, no thanks. Like, I don't want to hug. Did that hurt your feelings? And at first it was a bit off-putting, but I obviously had to respect that. And I think it's something we need to get more used to and not take it personally. And at the end of the meeting, she actually said that I could give her a hug. So, you know, and she was going through her own process. But, like, I think this is something we need to reconcile and not take it personally if someone doesn't want to hug. Of course not. And, you know, what's what's kind of ironic about this, uh, Shara, is that's what we're supposed to be. That's kind of how we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to do it even before COVID. Yeah. It's, it's called reading the room. You know, there are so many nonverbals, uh, nonverbal cues that are there if you're a hugger or you're not a hugger. You know, if you're not a hugger and someone's kind of coming to you in open arms, you you can reach your hand out. You can step back. You don't have to say, no, I'm not a hugger. And if you're on the flip side, if you are a hugger and you're kind of going there and you see the person take just an inch back, that should be enough to tell you just back off a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that I think when you think about the, like, I guess, pre-COVID, you're like, oh my God, now that we've been through all this, there's just no way I would ever do it again. So do you think that we're coming to the the end of like the hugging era? Like, I don't know if I ever want to hug again, to be honest. You know, I, I think not. I mean, m- maybe for you, Ryan, personally, and I think a lot of people are, are rethinking it, but you can already see handshakes are coming back, you know, hugs are coming back. I think there's more hesitation, and I definitely think you're going to see people who are now thinking twice about it, but all of these things, whether it's handshakes, fist bumps, foot bumps, or hugs, these are all social interactions, and it takes two, and it's part of our job as humans to, again, read the person and, and respect, respect their social boundaries. Yeah, I think that's the I most agree. important thing. If they don't want to shake your hand, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't like you. Uh, they could have, they could be sick. They could feel uncomfortable. I mean, those are the kinds of things where we need to not get that out of shape. We need to respect people's wishes. You know, I agree with that. And I'm a hugger. But even like now I'm starting to um, hang out in spaces where there's people that I don't know. And I'm like, I don't really feel the need. Like, I need to hug you. Like, I don't. And the hand thing, too. Shaking hands is kind of gross. That is more gross to me than a hug. For some reason, I do not believe you. You love a hug. I know. Well, I actually feel like a hug is more natural than a handshake. A handshake's strange. Yeah, handshake it's is awkward, weird. right? I rather do a f- the fist pump. I think we need to bring it back. I mean, we need to I normalize. Think we should leave the it in two thousand two. And is it a bump or a pump? <laughs> like, that's the big oh, question. Oh God! <laughs> oh, thank you so much for being with us. You're amazing. Oh my God! I gotta go back. I gotta go. Foot bump somebody now, so I'll talk yeah, to there you all go. And, and Ryan supposedly wants hugs, so I don't know. I how you're don't do want to hug. You just said, Oh, I, would, I would totally hug, hug Dr. Josh. He's the one person I would hug. Oh. Someday we'll get to hug Ryan. Thanks. I'm going to come visit you, give you a big old hug. Aww. Yeah, Ryan is very hug worthy. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Changing the Game is an award-winning documentary on Hulu focusing on transgender high school athletes. It will bring you a lot of tears. Get your Kleenex ready. Honestly, like chills, like for real. It's a moment. Yeah, here's a moment from the trailer. Wrestling's out me. I love it. I do train as hard as a man. Three. I fight as hard as a man. Two. I am a man. One. And I'm the state champ of 
female high school wrestling. Being transgender is not a choice. Would it be fair for me to be competing on the boys' team? No, I am a girl. That's who I am. Track has given me a sense of self-worth, self-confidence. On your mark. They could say whatever they wanted. Set. But at the end of the day, I'm still running on the female team. That's so unfair. It is totally a male biology. Where do you locate that so-called right to be included? They don't have the right. They're not girls. And now Alex Schmider joins us on the show, producer of Changing the Game and also an associate director of Transmedia at Glad. Thank you so much again for being here for this huge, I cannot believe. Thanks so much for having me back. I mean, we're honestly talking to an icon here. Are you kidding me? Oh my goodness, I'm talking to two icons over there. Well, I mean, I was so impressed by this and... I, for you, how did this all come together? How long have you been working on this? Uh, yeah, so I've been working on changing the game since about 2017. Um, I got a cold call from director Michael Barnett and my co-producer now, Claire Tucker. They were exploring whether they should make a documentary about trans high school athletes because Someone very close in Michael's life had come out as trans and he quickly recognized he didn't have the tools to be the ally or advocate he knew he wanted to be to this young person. And so he came across MacBeg's story and it sort of shook him to his core. And so that's when they started, you know, exploring. Was there a space for a story like this? Uh, Were they the right people to tell it? And I had some skepticism Um, justifiably uh, working at GLAAD and knowing how some filmmakers come to projects. But immediately upon meeting both of them, I knew that their intention was to do the work to really return these stories to these athletes who are so often hijacked from them and exploited to justify exclusion. And so that set us up on this this very collaborative, years-long journey to where we are today, which unfortunately has these stories more timely than ever. Yeah, and I think the the one thing I love about this is it, it doesn't feel like it's a direct response to all of the crazy narratives that are out there that, uh, you know, conservatives and Republicans are trying to put out there when it comes to this mm-hmm. issue. But it, it also feels like we're ignoring that and we're going to tell the stories of these these humans, these kids who are going through this and also having, you know, ups and downs with their journey, mm-hmm. but also they're kind of successful at it. Tell us a little bit about how did they decide to feature, you know, like a Mac or Andrea or Sarah? How how did that go about? Yeah, I mean, so we filmed about seven athletes total. And it should be said that before we ever brought a camera to film, it was incumbent on us to earn the trust of these young people. Because, again, so often the media takes from them their stories and uses them against them. And so for Mac and Andrea, they were already thrust into the public eye. And this was an opportunity that we felt we could return their stories to them. For someone like Sarah, and again, we were very intentional with who we included, we knew that with a bigger platform, she would be able to do more with her activism and advocacy. So she would be empowered from gaining a bigger platform. And that was always central to who we decided to feature. Were we going to enhance their lives 
um, by including them and featuring in this film. And um, that's ultimately how we decided. And also looking at the different policies in different states and the diversity of these young athletes. I mean, they are so different as people. Their families are so different. And I think it's really important in terms of representation to see the different ways um, that their communities show up for them and in the different ways they show up as themselves. Again, we're talking to Associate Director of Transmedia at GLAAD, Alex Schmeider, who also just so happens to be the producer of the award-winning documentary, Changing the Game. More about this incredible project next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Welcome back. We're talking to Alex Schmeider, who's the director of Transmedia at GLAAD, also the producer of the award-winning documentary Changing the Game on Hulu right now. So... What was the political landscape like as you shot this and how has it changed? It feels like it's gotten worse, but what is your take on that? Um, When we first started filming, filming, Max's story was just crescendoing in the national news and Andrea's was shortly behind. Um, And so at the time, those were really the two major news stories that were making headlines across the country. And yet the legislation wasn't being introduced at the constant pace that it is now. So I do believe that while the legislation has gotten significantly worse and is extremely dire in that what these lawmakers are attempting to do is solve a problem that doesn't. I will also say that the coalition building that's happened and people understanding what underlies all these bills is ultimately just sexism and racism and these institutions trying to rigidly define what it means to be a girl, what it means to be a woman, and who gets to be and who gets to succeed. Because what we saw with Andrea and Terry's story is that both of them, as black trans girls, their bodies are under constant scrutiny, and they are the two people who are cited as the reason why all these local legislators are introducing these bills. They can't cite local examples. They cite two black trans girls who are, in fact, no longer even running track. Wow. I <laughs> I, I think there, because it's this documentary is on Hulu, it's being introduced to such a, a huge audience at this point. What is the main and hope or takeaway that you would love for people watching this, finding out about this project to take away from? I, I mean, we made this film for everyone, no matter where you are in your journey towards allyship or understanding, this film is for you. If you like sports, we shot it like a Nike ad. If you like stories of resilience and overcoming, this is a story for you. If you love stories about love, this is a story for you because what... What we've overwhelmingly found in that in screening it for over two years in the festival circuit in red states, blue states, small towns, big cities, is that once you get to know these kids, you're reminded that they simply are just kids trying to be themselves and do what they love. And they're surrounded by truly a cast of characters uh, that are unforgettable in the likes of Engazi and Grandma Nancy specifically. Well, Alex Schmider, you're always a pleasure. Congratulations again. Alex Schmider is the producer of Changing the Game, a documentary out on Hulu right now and also associate director of Transmedia at GLAAD. Mm-hmm, Excited my to have you back and <laughs> to continue celebrating with you. 
Thank you so much for having me. Check it out on Hulu, Changing the Game. Now coming up, how Joe Biden is looking to continue the fights to end HIV. That's next on What's Trending This Hour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in to navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Yes, happy Thursday. We continue the show and coming up, we've got New York Times bestseller and graphic novelist Molly Knox Ostertag joining us in 15 minutes. I am so Excited to talk to her about queer visibility in books. Plus, Laverne Cox reveals why she almost left Hollywood. That's in the tea report. Oh, yeah. I was going to end it there because that's usually how much I tease. But I just got to add Frankie Grande is also with us. We've got an action-packed hour here on the show. Uh, but first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced the city will be parking vaccine buses at popular nightlife destinations to encourage... Zillennials to get vaccinated. For Zillennials, New Yorkers up to 25, we are going to meet them where they are. And a lot of times that means meeting them at a nightlife venue, a bar, someplace popular for people to gather. So we're parking our vaccine buses at popular nightlife destinations. And they've been already in Bushwick and Astoria and the Lower East Side and Inwood and at the Bronx Night Market. Tonight and tomorrow, will be in downtown Brooklyn, will be in West Village. This will keep happening. Okay, a few things here. I did not know that a, zil- a zillennial was a term. Did you? But according to the Google, millennial and Generation Z is a zillennial. It's the, uh, the word describes a transition between the two generations. But yeah, can you imagine like, hey, babe, let's go on a date to the club and to get vexed. This is getting weird. I mean, I, um, I'm, I'm impressed by the efforts, but it's getting strange. <laughs> Would you want to get a vaccine like after going a night out in the club? Is that even healthy to get like drunk and get vaxxed? Or even before, like before you go out, you don't want to like go partying after that. But anyway, now uh, during his presidential campaign, Biden did promise to recommit to ending the HIV AIDS epidemic by 2025. And it seems like he's doing just that. Biden has requested Congress to spend an additional $670 million on measures to fight HIV in the U.S., including access to PrEP and treatment, which is really great. The budget, though, is just a proposal and has to be enacted by Congress. And while it's unlikely that it will be passed in its current form, it does send a message to Congress about the administration's priorities and can help build support for spending. And finally, thousands of volunteers have pulled out of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics in recent weeks. And now there are concerns that Japan may not be ready to host the rescheduled games as the country struggles to control a new wave of COVID-19 cases. About 10,000 of the 80,000 registered volunteers supporting athletic events had quit as of yesterday. 
An opinion poll show most of the Japanese public actually oppose holding the Olympics, with hospitals overwhelmed by a fourth wave of COVID-19 cases, and a lot of people aren't even vaccinated. The country has reported more than 752,000 total coronavirus cases and more than 13,200 deaths. Japan's vaccine rollout has also gone much slower than expected, and so uh, there isn't enough supply to vaccinate much of the country's 126 million people. Oh, actually, sorry, there is enough. But the bottleneck actually is medical professionals available to administer the vaccines. Only nurses, doctors and dentists can legally give vaccines. So we will see if the Tokyo Olympics will happen. A lot of backlash also with the fact that they uh, didn't pass their Equality Act. But we'll keep you updated. And that was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in Entertainment News, Ryan? You know, here's some early motivation from the Laverne Cox uh, that we should all be inspired by. It's time for the Tea Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So Laverne Cox is opening up about her journey to stardom. The actress explains, you know, how she nearly quit acting altogether before booking her now iconic role in Netflix's Orange is the New Black. Here she is talking about it in a new um, clip. And I was just so happy to have a job. I was in rent arrears um, on my apartment. I had owed back rent and I was in all kinds of debt. And I was going to give up acting actually a few months before I booked Orange. I turned 40 that year and hadn't had a breakout moment and I was in debt and just it, things weren't going the way I'd hoped they Wait, were. so you said you were going to give up? I was going, yeah, I was planning to um, go back to graduate school. My birthday is May 29th and when I turned 40 in May, I was like, okay, I, I was devastated. I was just devastated by like, Turning 40 and my life was just kind of in shambles, like financially. And I had worked and trained a lot. And my dream of being a working actor had not come to fruition. And I was just like, I got to do something else. I mean, who do I think I am? I'm a Black transgender woman. No one's ever done this before. Let me go and do something, you know, have a real job or something. So can we talk about how Laverne Cox said that she was 40 at the time when Netflix's Orange the New Black came out and then like... Now she looks literally like she's 25. Like she looks, she's aged back. I don't even know how old she is and I don't even want to know at this point because it looks like she was just birthed. You know, we've talked about this before and not to say I don't know anything about her wealth, but like the more uh, famous you get or successful and plus if you're making some good money, you do get better looking. Yeah, that's all you need is and people aren't ugly. They just need you more need money. some maintenance. They just need more money. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, I, I've thought of when I get any money, I'm like, oh, I want to save it. But I was like, I've been wanting to do my brows. Maybe I get some Botox. <laughs> like, I don't know. But uh, yes, I, I love stories like this because it does show that, you know, you, when you're in your 30s or you're hitting 40s, you're like, oh, it's over. But it really shows stories like hers that it's the beginning. You don't need to create those restrictions for yourself. It is the beginning for sure. Um, Now, that is my tea report. But before we go, I got to tell you about during Pride Month, Ralph's and Food for Less are partnering with Channel Q and the Los Angeles LGBT Center to help fill the fridge for homeless LGBT youth and seniors in need. So please text fridge, you know, the other word you call your refrigerator, fridge, F-R-I-D-G-E, to 20357 to donate to the Los Angeles LGBT pre-pantry. Donations doubled by Ralph's and Food for Less, which honestly slay. 
You know, of course, thousands of elderly LGBT seniors don't have enough food to eat each month. Or, um, you know, and it makes a huge difference with the $25 donation to the Los Angeles LGBT Center, Pride Pantry, providing an entire week worth of groceries. Wow. Just $25 can do that. Help us fill the fridge by texting FRIDGE to 20357 to donate. And, of course, Ralph's and Food for Less are doubling those donations, honey. So do what you can if you want to. Yeah, love that. And coming up on the show today, New York Times bestselling writer Molly Knox Ostertag joins us to discuss queer visibility in the publishing industry and more about her latest graphic novel that's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Molly Knox Ostertag is the New York Times bestselling creator of the Witch Boy series and the recently released graphic novel, The Girl from the Sea. Her message, it's time for queer visibility across publishing, but more specifically in the young adult space. She joins us now. Molly, thanks for being here on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, happy Happy Pride Month. Yes, Happy Pride. We love this. We, we feature those in the LGBTQ plus space, not just during Pride, but every day, but especially during Pride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I love what you're doing. Has this always been a mission for you? That's a great question. And um, no, not really. I When I started um, working in comics, and even when I sort of pitched the first Witch Boy book, I wasn't out to anyone in my life or really to myself either as uh, being gay. And then sort of over the course of drawing and writing that first graphic novel was when I really came out and found a lot of meaning in the book um, uh, that was like sort of relevant to, to queerness. And so that I think was like, was like what really showed me that both like there was like a desire for stories like that. And also that I had a perspective that I wanted to share. So um, kind of ever since that book came out, I've been trying in like all the different spheres I'm in to um, tell like really like authentic and real stories about uh, queer kids and the experience of being queer when you're when you're young. Yeah, because I feel like, I mean, I didn't grow up with having that those types of books around, and I'm sure you didn't as well, or did you? Absolutely. Yeah, there's such a wonderful influx of them right now. But um, yeah, there was there was so little like when I don't remember anything when we were kids when I was a kid. How has publishing become more inclusive? Do you feel it's where it needs to be? Um, and what are the gaps right now? Yeah, um, I think it's been wonderful working in comics. I've never, I work, my books are with Scholastic and I've never had an issue with them over any kind of censorship. And um, I, 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 I do think that these stories are really wanting to be told. Something I'd love to see more of in the future is more stories from people of color telling their own queer experiences. Um, because I think that that is still like sadly something that publishing is really lacking. But we're definitely seeing uh, just a big increase in queer stories and queer romances and like just stories where it's like a casual part of the narrative as well. And I, I find that so lovely. Um, I come from like really kind of like indie comics, which mm-hmm. is really just people doing exactly what they want and putting it out there and selling zines to their friends. And so I think um, like I was used to that kind of story being told because people were doing that already in those like smaller spaces. And so it's been just like so cool over the last 10 years to see it become yeah. like a much more widely distributed thing. Well, tell us more about The Girl from the Sea, your new young adult graphic novel from Scholastic. Sure. Um, yeah. So it's, it's young adult. It's a little older than the Witch Boy series. And it is a sort of supernatural summer romance. It's about this 15-year-old girl, Mar- Morgan. 
she lives on a tiny island in Nova Scotia, off the coast of Nova Scotia, which is actually an island where I spent all of my summers with my family. And she is gay, but isn't out to anyone in her life. And she is just waiting until she can get out of this island and get away from her friends who she's known forever and her family. And only then is she going to come out. Um, that's like her plan. But like all good, great plans, it goes awry. Um, she meets this mysterious girl called Kelsey, who claims to be a selkie, which is sort of a half seal, half human uh, uh, mythological creature. And uh, Morgan falls for Kelsey and um, uh, drama ensues. And so it's, it's like a really fun and I think kind of bittersweet story of first summer love. Um, and I really wanted with that book to like the Morgan and Kelsey meet and kiss within like the first 10 pages. And I really wanted to sort of start it off on that foot and then have the rest of the book be about the repercussions of that kiss and them trying to have a relationship while also Morgan keeping all of everything juggled that she wants to juggle. Um, and so that's, that's kind of, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. And it, it just came out on um, Tuesday. So it's been really nice. Yay. Being the reception to oh it. my God. Congratulations. And by the way, I'm Canadian. So I was like, hello, fellow. Oh, great. Cana- <laughs> I don't know if you're Canadian. You just went to Nova Scotia for the holidays. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. But I, I was going to uh, say, I mean, with in the U.S., at least with, um, you know, educators and uh, I would say in the middle of America more so and Republicans really fighting how we include books like this in schools. What is what is your thought around that and how we continue to fight for visibility, uh, not just in this space, but in schools, because you could be doing this work, but then have people stopping uh, youth from seeing it and reading it. Yeah, it's it sucks. Um, I think uh, a couple of weeks ago, I actually like got there was like a Fox News station somewhere I think in Oklahoma who like did a story on the book and like how it was like so inappropriate for children, um, which I found kind of funny. But it is it's it's a, it's sad because I think that kids do need to see these books and like there's nothing inappropriate about a it's like a very kind of sweet teenage romance like so many classic books are. It is interesting when it's a graphic novel because it is so visual. And so I think sometimes like a teacher or a parent can like flip open to a page and be like, oh, my God, this is a gay book. We can't let our kids have this. So I think um, I've met so many amazing librarians um, over my career as an author who are really working to bring queer stories to their like communities. And um, I always try to kind of maintain an online presence and make sure to share other ways that people can read the book. So like if there are queer kids out there who can't have a copy in their home to be like, okay, you can get it online. You could read it in these different places. Um, Cause that is important. And I think we sometimes forget that, that not everyone can just go out and buy this book and have it on their bookshelf. Definitely. Well, thank you for everything that you're doing and congratulations. Great way to begin pride month. Yeah. Thank you. It's been really, the reception has been so, so lovely so far. Well, uh, that was writer and cartoonist Molly Knox Ostertag. Check out her new graphic novel, The Girl from the Sea, out now. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Now, coming up on the show, Frankie Grande is here. We've got so many guests this show to share more about his Rainbow Thon event tonight. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Since most of Pride will be virtual again this year, many of our favorite stars are getting creative on how to bring Pride to you. One of our favorites, Frankie Grande, is back with us. It's so exciting to celebrate Pride with you today. Happy Pride. I miss you guys. I know. I mean, it feels like we just talked to you, to be quite honest, but I'm happy you're back. 
<laughs> Listen, I miss you in person. That's what I miss. Now I miss someone we can go to do real big hugs <laughs> and just like skip down the street yes. in our tiny little teeny weensy weensy rainbow bikini throwing glitter. You know, I'm ready to go, honey. No, but that's funny because <laughs> speaking of rainbow and, and glitter, it feels like, you know, it's like Mariah Carey's Christmas season. She gets superpowers. I feel like this is literally your superpower moment. Pride is. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, I even like posted about that this morning. It's like, you know, I live my life with pride and shining and glitter and rainbows, but there's something about the month of June and it just gets even brighter and just <laughs> all the colors just get a little bit more vibrant. You take that saturation, you turn that up to like 50 more percent, you know? <laughs> yes, we love it. So tell us more. I, I love this idea of what you're doing. The Rainbow-thon. So basically, you know, I do AIDS life cycle every year. And uh, for the past now two years, we haven't been able to uh, get on a bike and bike 545 miles, which usually is how I raise money for the LA LGBT Center. You know, I'm like, listen, I'm working my tail off quite literally. Like I can barely sit or stand <laughs> or walk. So yeah. give me your money. But um, instead of doing that for the past two years, I was like, you know what? I'm going to work my tail off in a different way. I'm going to call up some of my uh, best friends, and we're going to put on a really, really queer show for you um, to get your money and to raise awareness for the amazing work that the Los Angeles LGBT Center has done since COVID started and before and beyond. Um, And it's going to be a blast. And I can't wait for you guys to see some of the numbers. They're so funny. Some of the numbers are so funny and so silly. Um, And some, of course, are so beautiful and so heartfelt. But um, it's going to be a great show. It's going to be a great show. You know, this Pride season, I feel like, always brings up the necessary conversation about how corporations are, you know, really stepping into the Pride world. And it feels like, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of really queer baiting us and, and and connecting with us even though it feels very corporate corporate-y. Um, I wonder how does someone like Frankie Grande decide who they decide to kind of lend their you know lend who you are to a corporation or a pride event like what goes into that decision because I know it's probably a, an important one and needs to match the amazing work that you're constantly doing yeah first of all I don't think there's any such thing as too much pride washing I think that as many corporations can put as many rainbow flags in their window as possible is so good for our community because visibility is key. We do not have allies everywhere where we need them. If we did have allies everywhere where we need them, we would have people, LGBTQ plus people, in the top of corporations. We would have people um, at the top of politics, and we don't yet. We do not have nearly enough representation, so please, Put us in your windows at Target. Put us in your windows at Gap. Put rainbow flags everywhere you can because you never know when there is that one bigoted person who does not like gay people. And all of a sudden they're like, you know what? These rainbow flags actually are kind of cute. Maybe it isn't that bad of a thing. So please, 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 please show us your support in any way, shape, or form. I will take it and I will (laughs) never be mad if I see a rainbow flag in any corporate window, honey. I will say the the Target collection is hideous, though. I don't know who made it, but it's really bad. Listen, there's no accounting for taste. I'm not saying that everyone (laughs) hates it, but I just want to say I want to see rainbows in every single window. I want it to be like if you are not doing it, then you are missing out. That's what I would like. I want it to be um, a universal show of support so that we are making allies and we are making people feel a little bit more comfortable with the fact that the LGBTQ plus nation is strong and proud and wonderful. Um, and in terms of what, who I decide to lend my voice to, you know, it's um, always a different combination of things. Sometimes it's people that I have already have a great working relationship with who then say, hey, would you like to do 
something for Pride with us. And other times they'll come and they'll seek me out and be like, hey, we're looking for a Pride ambassador. And then if it's something that I vibe with, you know, everything I always post is kind of um, organic. Tell us a little bit who's involved with the Rainbow Thon, because I want to go back to that, because obviously the first one raised so much money, $55,000. I know you're yeah. wanting to top that moment. So who's involved? I really do. I desperately. Like, we need a, someone, someone, we need a top. Someone call someone. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, it's going to we'll be hard one. finding one of those that. in West Hollywood. Yeah, not in WeHo, honey. <laughs> honey, we got to go to, like, I don't know, Pasadena? Are there tops in Pasadena? Oh, yeah, I think there are. I'm yeah. not sure. Closer to me. We'll find one. Uh, so, yeah, we have amazing people. You know, I have some all-stars that performed uh, last year coming back again. Uh, Jewel is coming back. And Shoshana Bean. And my dear friend Marissa Jartwinoker, who I think is going to win for Funniest. She's always so funny. But I really think that it's uh, funny uh, this year. we got some beautiful drag race girls coming. You know, Jan Sport will be showing up. And so will... Um, uh, Jimbo from you know, RuPaul's Drag Race Canada I was a, such a big fan of Jimbo, so so grateful that um, Jimbo will be there. And JoJo Siwa is lending her voice, which is so beautiful. You know, I'm so proud of her and her journey um, with coming out and being such an amazing ambassador for Pride uh, this year. It's like it's so necessary. Now, fellow Nickelodeon uh, queen, you know, it's it's we're so exciting. We got more LGBTQ representation on on Nickelodeon, which is so good for the kids of the world. Um, and it's going to be just amazing. Lace Ashley, like so many people, so many great people. Well, thank you as always for playing with us and joining us. We love having you on. Oh, I love being here with you guys. And oh, again, next, next time, let's do it in person. Yes. Well, you have a lot to do. Everyone can watch Rainbow Thon, rainbowthon.org today, June 3rd, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, Frankie Grande. Have a great pride. Month. And tell your sister we Thank say congratulations, so by the way. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Want, you know, Mazel so as the Jews I say. I will. I know. The family got even more grande. We got an even bigger family. It's so we nice. We love that. We love that. And we love you so much. So thank you for always being supportive of the show and, and just Channel Q in general. Definitely love you lots and happy pride. But coming up on the show, we're going to be looking at this leaked script from the Powerpuff Girls reboot that has the internet cringing. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. So there was supposed to be this live action Powerpuff Girls reboot on the CW. Have you seen it? I know the old school one, like the original Powerpuff Girls. Do but you? I was never like, wait a second while I say, I was never a huge fan <laughs> before you test me out of like all their names and the characters. It doesn't seem like you I know what they it. look like. I, why can't you just say you didn't see it? You don't I've seen, it. <laughs> no, they're like uh, circle characters. Oh. What? They're like the are, Powerpuff Girls. They're like I remember like the very circle, circly, and very like bright colors. Shira's never seen it, so no. okay, let's move on. Yeah, they do have circle heads, big circle heads. They're, they have regular hue, like regular heads. All of our heads are circle. No, but like, they're really big circle heads. All right. So Tell you were a fan. You were a fan of Powerpuff Girls. Duh. All I'm right. Gay. Of course. Well. They were supposed to have this reboot. They did the pilot episode, and it was clearly a miss. The live-action version, it seems, according to uh, all these reports in the CW, it was supposed to be an edgy drama, and the Powerpuff Girls were not going to just be these animated characters, but these dissolution millennials. Um, and that was already unpopular among a lot of fans. I mean, what did you think about the reboot idea, Ryan? I was actually really excited. I didn't... Um... 
I don't kind of necessarily fall on the line of what everyone thinks about CW shows. Like, I know Riverdale is like just crazy and stupid, um, and so people don't really enjoy it. But I actually enjoy actually, kind of the tone of a, a, like a CW Riverdale. show. I have been watching a bit of Riverdale. See, watching the first season doesn't count. They're like five seasons in. I hate you. I just, <laughs> you have to say, but I, um, when the Powerpuff Girl reboot was announced, I was excited to see what a live action version of that looks. But then they released some photos of them on set and it looked like cosplay, like really cheap party, like, you know, cosplay. And it did not look good. And then now hearing about this script. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. So, yeah, the script has been... Uh, not released. It basically emerged. It was it leaked. leaked. Yeah. I'm trying to get to that word. Um, <laughs> I got you. Daily Dot described everything, including a bit of what you said, that it was a bad parody of an edgy sexualized reboot. Um, that some of the characters, like one of them is a wannabe celebrity influencer who winds up in rehab. That kind of makes sense. Um, they casually threaten each not for other. The Powerpuff Girls, like that's not even a thing for Powerpuff Girls. <laughs> well, this is, I guess, a modern day Powerpuff Girl. I thought they were a bit more empowering. No, they were girls. The emphasis on girls. They were kids. I know, but I thought and it they was were just like showing science experiments. It sh- wasn't on villains. Okay. Wait, what? So they weren't yeah. empowering characters. They were. I mean, they they fought the bad guys. That's for what little I'm talking girls, about. But like. They're not like, you know, Gloria Steinman. So, possibly in the future, though. So, also in this new uh, reboot, the girls casually threaten to leak each other's nudes. And the basic premise relies on the idea that their childhood was totally miserable, abandoning this fun-loving superhero vibe of the original cartoon. Uh, That was from The Daily Dot, but yes. Here's the thing. What? Reboots are sometimes not meant for the audience that once grew up on them. Oh, yeah. Right? I think reboots, we have to um, allow... Um, a newer generation to see these things. I think a lot of times when people are thinking reboots, they're like, oh my God, it's going to be exactly like how I remembered it when I grew up on it. Well, that necessarily is not going to work. It's a live action. It's going to, it's, it's somehow kind of supposed to be real. And, and, you know, I do want him, I do want them to get it right. I really, really do. Um, and I'm still probably going to watch it once they figure out the reworking of it and they start from ground uh, zero. But I think um, a lot of people just should just chill out. So chill I guess, out. Even though it is kind of gross thinking about the Powerpuff Girls having <laughs> sex and sharing each other's nudes. Like, what is that? A bit extreme. Why do you have to sexualize t- kids so much? Well, now they're women. They're young women who are dealing with things young women face these days, which that is real. I guess. You know, uh, so the the pilot has been put on pause. I guess they need to redo it. Imagine how much money they spent on the original. It, I mean, not a lot if you looked at the pictures. <laughs> CW's chairman, Mark Pedowitz, said that the pilot may have felt a little too campy, not rooted in reality, <laughs> and that it's a powerful property. It engaged a lot of interest. Yeah, it is. So don't mess it up. Figure it out. Well, cheer it. You, you, oh, at least this gives you more time to catch up on the original series. I have way too much stuff to catch up on. I know. I don't, I don't even know what to do with my life. I really don't either, to be <laughs> honest. What has been your favorite reboot so far? Oh, that is a hard one. I don't, yeah, I, I don't know if I have, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about it and I'll text you later. <laughs> well, let us know at LGT Show <laughs> if there's a reboot that you love that you think did it properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, would love to hear from you. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. We are wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yaz Queen of the Day. Yeah. 
Yes, Queen. And of course, Yes, Queen is doing something good and is brought to you by Ralph's and Food for Less. Please support the Los Angeles LGBT Center Pride Pantry. All you have to do is text FRIDGE to 20357. That's FRIDGE to 20357 to make a donation today, just in time for Pride Month. Donations doubled by Ralph's and Food for Less. Come on, let's raise money together. And uh, shout out on our Yaz Queen of the Day to these Seattle auto mechanics who are changing the game. We are a feminist auto repair shop that is exclusively run and staffed by a diverse group of women, queer people, trans people, and allies. I went in and applied at uh, a, couple, a few different shops around Olympia. Um, I had a lot of, like, no, we don't hire girls. Why don't you go next door? They, they hire girls. Pretty typical for a technician in the, the early stages of your career, you start out with the dealership. In my experience, and I think it's a pretty common experience, it's, it's pretty awful working conditions as far as like, there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of sexism. This is so the owners of Repair Revolution took matters into their own hands. They started this uh, and I think this is so cool. I've never heard of an inclusive auto repair shop, and but I guess when you think about it, there are issues with the industry. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel that energy even when I go get my oil changed. Yeah. Like, I see women there, and I just feel like, I just be wanting to be like, girl, are they treating you right? Because I, I, you know how to do my car. You tell me. I don't even know where the little oil change line is when they show me. And I just be nodding my head yes every time they show me. And I don't even know if they really feel it or not. I'm just praying to God that she's telling me the right thing. But last time I went, a woman, she was actually the one explaining everything to me. And uh-huh. I, I felt more comfortable because sometimes even with guys, it seems like, oh, you should know that because you're a man. Yeah, or there's a lack of trust. And I feel, at least as a woman, like I will be taken advantage of because I just don't know or get it. Um, And so here at the Repair Revolution, they practice radical transparency. Mm. Eli um, Allison, who's the mechanic and their team, ensure that no one is left guessing whether they are being taken advantage of and can leave fully confident that their car is in the right hands. So that is so cool. And there are actually other queer mechanics doing this um, that have popped up throughout the U.S., like Stargazer Garage in Portland, Oregon, and Yes We Can Auto Repair in Austin, Texas. So a shout out to all of them who are are uh, doing cool stuff and change. I don't want to say changing the game again. I need something else. But I they mean, are, they are kind of changing and shifting the game. Taking the wrench in their own hands. Wow, that's a good place to end the show yes. on such a high note. <laughs> yes, Queen. And we'd love to hear from you. If you want to recommend a story for us to cover or someone for us to feature on our Yaz Queen of the Day, just hit us up, slide it into our DMs at LGT Show. Now, coming up on tomorrow's show, we have the first out LGBTQ plus Olympic wrestler joining us. How cool is that? Oh, my God. So cool. Yes. And, of course, what's trending this hour? We keep you updated with all of that on the show. And if you miss any of our shows or interviews, we post everything as a podcast. So join our podcast family. Just go to the Odyssey app or where podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And, honey, you better remember to always slay. Yes. Stick around for Love Line, where Dr. Chris is talking about healthier texting and sexting. That's next. All right. Bye, y'all. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.